You know, I'm not sure that there's a sermon illustration uh, that grabbed me more than one I heard years ago uh, from Dr. Brian Chappell, who at the time was serving as our denomination's uh, uh, seminary president in St. Louis. Um, While he was president, he had noticed that the door to his very nice office uh, wasn't working properly. It wouldn't close all the way. So he called a carpenter to come and work on it. Well, Chappell says he really tried his best to kind of, you know, mind his own business while the guy was doing his work. And this old sort of grizzled carpenter sort of unmounted the door and goes to work on it. But eventually he just kind of became uh, sort of enthralled by it, at the mastery of this man's work, especially in his use of a planer, a little tool that has a little blade on it. And he'd sit there watching while this man shaved off the parts of the door and making these little tiny wooden curly cues. And so lost in the fascination, Chapel accidentally very much said out loud, isn't that neat? Not when you've been doing it for 30 years, it's not, the old man growled. Of course, Chapel kind of sheepishly went back to minding his own business, but he said it really disturbed him because he wondered at that time what it must be like to just get older and get more jaded, more cynical, more, more bored as time goes on. And he found himself really sad thinking about a life that seemed to kind of have lost its ability to wonder anymore. But here's what's interesting. After the carpenter left, the door still didn't work. He said the lesson that came home to him was this. He said, because the, the work you take no joy in is very hard to do well. And I'm telling you, after that, I've just never been the same after that. Because we're starting today a brand new series in the book of Ephesians uh, that's Paul's letter to one of his favorite churches there in Ephesus. Paul had spent many fruitful years there and had come to love many of those dear friends. So he sits down to pen a letter that's, well, it's about a lot of things that we're going to dive into this semester. But what I want you to notice, first of all, as we dive into this book, is I want to talk about these intentions in writing the book. And and, And he tips his hand right out of the gate about the fact that he's really excited about something. Actually, He's about to bust with something. Uh, you could say that he's, he's overflowing. I mean, downright effervescent is Paul right out of the gate. And we know that in a couple of ways. Because after he gives this very brief introduction that was common to most letters at this time, this first word out of his mouth is the word blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. In other words, he's saying, blessing to you, O God, because you have blessed us. It's the first idea on his mind. Now, I do realize that the word blessing may have fallen out of usage. It kind of probably belongs in some of your minds to kind of, I don't know, old-fashioned church lady Christianity, but it shouldn't. You know, you bless someone whenever you tell them what about them makes you happy. That's a blessing to them. Man, congratulations on that promotion. You must have nailed that interview. Wow, you aced that exam, you brought your grade point up a whole point. That's fantastic. Every time you say things like that, you are being a blessing to someone. And so Paul is saying, God, you have done something so wonderful that I've got to talk about it. And you know that he's about to explode because he launches into one of the great New Testament run-on sentences. You've got, you've got uh, um, punctuation in your English translation. But everything, you need to know this, from verses 3 all the way down to verse 14 is one uninterrupted sentence in the original language. In other words, Paul, Paul has been so moved by something that, that, that he can almost not get the words out. You ever know anybody that's in this state? 
you know? Uh, and then he took my hand, and then he looked me into the eyes, and then he said something to me that I'll never forget, and then I told him that I loved him too, and that he, I wanted to marry him too. In those moments, you just can't keep it from coming out. And so Paul, it's as if he is breathlessly pouring out something that's delighted him. John Stott says this in his commentary, we enter this epistle through a magnificent gateway. It is a golden chain of many links, a, a kaleidoscope of dazzling lights and shifting colors. My family has a tradition on Christmas Eve. It's kind of become a tradition. We go up to Memphis to be with my family for a couple hours on Christmas Eve. And on the way home, every time I ask my kids, do you want to go by the cove again? And they're like, yes. There's a group, there's some, there's a group of houses in East Memphis uh, that clearly classify in the whole Christmas decoration world as over the top. There's nothing quite like this. You turn the corner and it's as if it just hits you. I'm sure there's like planes wanting to land overhead. It's so bright. There's, every year they've got something new that's put out there. The thing that always amazes me, though, is how they want to go back and see it every single time. Why? They never get tired of it because there is something inside of the human psyche that, that, that trains our eyes towards beauties, towards joy. And Paul has found just that. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to look closely at just what he's discovered. But I want to begin our journey by simply saying this. Whatever it is that Paul is about to show us, whatever are the principles and the, and the applications and the lessons that he has to follow, every bit of it is rooted in the same joy that's in the face of a child when they first see Christmas lights. It's all rooted in that. And this is that great principle that I want to unpack this morning, that Christianity sets itself apart from every world religion because it roots joy at the center of the universe and as the motivational center of the human psyche. It's supported by, it's motivated through, and it's rooted in joy or blessing. And the truth is, if you don't get this point right, all of the theological truth that he's going to sort of lay on you in the, week, in the verses to come will do the opposite of what you think it will do if it's not rooted in this joy he's talking about, in this blessing. So three quick points this morning about how Paul opens up this substance of this blessing. I'm going to look at the utility of the joy, its usefulness, the location of that joy where you can find it, and then the fountain of joy. What is it? What are we drinking of here? So first of all, the utility of joy. Look, I can state this first point kind of succinctly. Because Paul opens his letter like this, we can say that joy is an infinitely better motivator than anything else you might go to. Think about this. There are so many rival motivations for why someone might try to live the Christian life, but joy outpaces all of them. Think about it. Joy is so much better than guilt. <laughs> I mean, th there are plenty of people who in the past, maybe you're there today, who are living under this impression that the guilt that I feel in having disappointed God the way that I, in which I have will somehow provide me with a negative energy to go and live this life better. Now look, I'm not denying the fact that guilt probably has an appropriate place in the Christian life, <laughs> especially when you consider that before a holy God we are in fact guilty. But, but as the base note of a Christian's life, it fails. And you want to know why? It fails because guilt is always a repellent. It, it pushes away. Think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And when God comes down to them after they've sinned in the cool of the day, what, what, what are they doing? They're hiding from him. 
Why? Because guilt, a broken relationship, will always be something I want to push away. Secondly, guilt is even better than duty. I realize that there's a sort of cross-section of personalities in the room for whom the Christian life is a simple exchange. Jesus gave his life for me, therefore I owe him my life. Now, I don't have any problem with that statement on the face of it, and I've got the least problem with, uh, with this of all of them. But I will say this, if that's all you have, it's going to run dry. Sure, sure, God is our commander-in-chief that we obey orders and directions just because he said it absolutely, but he is also our father. And there's a reason for him revealing both, because it roots us in joy. Thirdly, joy is so much better than fear. <laughs> you know, I've counseled a lot of people over the year whose desire to do the right thing as a Christian is only really motivated by the fear of what God will do to me if I don't. And again, I'm granting that there actually is a legitimate fear of the Lord that we read throughout Scripture, but, but that's more about respect and awe. I'm talking about a slavish fear, a fear that enslaves me and does nothing but distance me from his heart. Now, out of all those ways of approaching the Christian life, only joy has the ability to create the things that it's supposed to create. I, I, would, I would put in front of you that as a chief motivation, it functions in all kinds of different ways. First of all, joy is the best holiness producer in your life. Don't believe me? Let's take R Romans chapter 12 for a moment. You know, Paul spends chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. I mean, even if you've ever read a couple of those verses, like it's like you get a nosebleed reading Paul in chapters 1 through 11. It is some high theology that he does. But as soon as he finishes all of that discussion, he gets in chapter 12, verse 1, and he says this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore... By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. In other words, in light of the mercies, in view of the mercies, because of the mercies, that's what Paul has in mind before he ever calls you to live a holy life. There's something about that joy. Secondly, joy is a wonderful evangelist, the best evangelist. We're going to talk so much more about this in chapter 3 when we get to there where Paul gives us his view of evangelism. But I can introduce it here because there's a sense in which you'll always talk about whatever it is that's bringing you joy at any given moment in your life. You notice this? Commentator Daniel Aiken says, look around you and you will find expressions of praise. Teenage girls screaming at boy band concerts, sports fans exalting the virtues of their team, paying big money for tickets and adjusting their schedule to be at the games. <laughs> my favorite. Dad's getting fired up about going to the Home Depot to get on work on a new project. You know, you can't not buy something at Home Depot. I've learned this. Don't send me in there if you don't have any money, because I'm, I'm in trouble. Adulterers praising their new mistresses. Consumers praising their favorite stores. Television viewers praising their favorite new series. And coffee drinkers commending their favorite coffee shop. Listen to this. Humanity has never had a problem expressing praise. See what happens? Because there's a mechanism inside of you that needs to get that out. How about this? Have you ever met a celebrity? Have you ever noticed how hard it is to keep from wanting to tell them how awesome they were in that movie? That album that you did blew me away. I'm never in the ch it's changed my life. A number of years ago, I'm not making this up. This is a real story. I met Paul Schaefer, the band leader of David Letterman's band from The Letterman Show, on, a, on the pier in South Beach, Miami. He was out there strolling, and I literally bumped into him. You look down, you're like, it's Paul Schaefer. 
And babbling like a goof, I sat there and confessed to him a thanks and appreciation for making me laugh through my entire high school and college years in the 80s when I was watching Letterman. You can't help it. You get in the presence of those people and it just kind of comes out. And here's the effect of that. The effect of that is compelling to the people who listen. It's a wonderful story about um, uh, uh, one of our founding fathers of our nation, Benjamin Franklin, himself no Christian uh, really. Um, but someone asked him why it was that he became so fascinated to go hear um, the famous English evangelist George Whitfield in, in his preaching rallies. And, he looked, and his friend looked at ben, Benjamin Franklin and was like, you don't believe anything of what he says. Why do you go listen to him? And Franklin responds to me, he goes, because he does. See the point? That's what made him compelling. I'll go because he's convinced of it. It's cra- captured his imagination. So what we find then is that we have this incredible uh, power to evangelize with our joys. Finally, joy is the greatest tool for character analysis. In other words, nothing in your life, quote, makes you the way you are more than your joys. It's not your job. It's not your background. It's not your looks. It's not the fact that you live in. It's not your address. You live in Oxford, whatever. You are, in the Bible's estimation, nothing more and nothing less than the outworkings of a mechanism inside of your life that the Bible calls your heart. Proverbs 27, 19 says, As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of a man reflects the man. You want to know what you are? Look at that mechanism that accesses your joys. It's called your heart. That's who you are. In other words, if you want to know who you are, look deeply into your delights. Watch Watch when the, what happens when those delights are denied and you get angry. Watch your pocketbook. Watch your leisure time. Because once you get there, you'll get to the bottom of who you are at your joys. Okay, so I hope you're asking right now, all right, sounds good. Uh, where exactly do I access this? Where can that be found? Well, that brings me to the second point. That was the utility of joy. But notice the location of our joy. Well, you can access it by seeking it where it's found. And Paul says where it's found in verse 3. Look at it again. All of these blessings are, at the very end, in the heavenly places. You want to find these joys? They are there for you in heaven. Now look, you're lying if you didn't just register disappointment inside when you thought to yourself, well, great. Well, a whole lot of good that's going to do me. If it's locked up there, you know, I live in the real world, preacher boy, okay? And I don't have time to be, find, figure out where this invisible heaven is. And actually, I want to take that question seriously, because I do think it's something that we kind of skip over. And I hope you've been hearing me in the last eight months that I'm trying to commend to you that a Christian just has a very different way of looking at the world than most people do. Because for us, the world that we see is not all there is. There's another realm, an invisible, unseen realm. And no, it's not a billion light years away. God lives there with all of the heavenly beings there. And it's not far away. It's all around us, just beyond the reach of our senses. But here's what we rarely talk about. Just because that realm is unseen does not mean that it's inaccessible. You follow me on this? The Bible goes to these great lengths to explain that heaven can be accessed in this space, fundamentally through two means, at least off the top of my head. The first one is this, through prayer. 
Now realize, that sounds weird. But the Bible says that you have something called a soul, okay? It's inside of you. It's the place where your thoughts live. It's the place where your emotions live. It's the place where your imagination rests. And those things, that soul, has the ability to access heaven. And again, just because it's accessed with the imagination does not necessarily mean that it is imaginary or not real. It drives me crazy. Just because we access things through our imagination doesn't mean that they're not real. Listen to Francis Folks in his commentary on Ephesians. He says, Today's remarkable flow of new information about our physical universe should actually increase our confidence in, our awe of God as creator. But it may lead others to think of heaven as a distant, irrelevant place with little connection to earth and the visible universe. But Ephesians shows that there is a greater universe of space and time than we might imagine. Heaven above and the age to come may exist in a different dimension, but the heavenly realms are real and they are integral parts of God's creation and are presently accessible to Christians who are in Christ. It's not inaccessible. So in our prayers, in our souls, we access that place to speak to. You just said it in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. Did you think you were talking to somebody or not? There's a second place that we access heaven, and this one's a little harder to believe. Believe it or not, Ephesians is going to teach us that the other place that we access heaven is in the church and the gathering of God's people. And look, Jesus says this and gets us started on this road in the New Testament when he says, wherever two or more are gathered, I will be there with him. Now, what's he doing? At that moment, he's drawing off of a lot of sort of thinking around the Jewish mind about the temple. Because a Jewish person didn't just see the temple as a convenient worship center. It's actually pretty inconvenient if you think about it. But that place was the place where literally heaven and earth intersected. When you went to the temple, you were in the nearest place of heaven on earth. And so the church begins to be this new place where all of a sudden, all of that energy that was put into the temple has now broken out, especially when the Spirit arrives at Pentecost. So, you see, so if you put it in the terms of verse 3, churches are supposed to be little outbreaks of heaven on earth. You had no idea this morning, did you, where you were coming? See there? Now look, before I move on to my last point, there's one small thing to be said that, ought to, that actually ought to thrill us about this. Because if all of our blessings, all of this joy, are rooted in heaven, do you know what that means? That means nobody can touch them. It means they can't be threatened. There's nothing that can get to them there because they're safe in him. It means that I can't mess them up. It means that my circumstances can't mess them up. It means that my, my, my physical body succeeding or failing can't mess that up. Reminded me of that line from Shawshank Redemption where Andy Dufresne at one point is talking about the way in which he is surviving prison. And he says, I forget that there are places in the world that are not made of stone and that there's a thump something inside that they can't get to, that they can't touch. It's yours. And I thought every Christian can say that. Why? Because we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every blessing, it's there, it's safe. We'll talk more about that as we go on. So there's, there's the utility of joy, its usefulness. That's the location of joy is in heaven. The thirdly, the fountain of joy. It brings you to the final point. Because I hope you're thinking, okay, okay, it sounds good. What's the joy all about? 
what, why, what, why would it be enough for Paul to root his entire letter in? Well, you probably missed it there in verse 3. Look at what it says. Who has blessed us in Christ. There it is. Now look, you got to get used to that little phrase because it dominates Paul's thinking. I, I, I'd go on as far as to say is like, you really can't understand most of what Paul is talking about uh, unless you wrap your mind on what he means by this phrase. If for no other reason, the sheer repetition ought to blow you away. Throughout Paul's letters, that phrase, in Christ, or, or in him, or in the, uh, in the beloved, gets used like 100, 164 times, one commentator said. Even in our own passage that we're going to look at in the next few weeks, verses 1 through 14, it's used 11 times. So clearly this is a big deal to Paul. What in the world is he talking about, and where did he get that idea? Well, I think there's a clue for us if you go back to the day when Paul became a Christian. And we have that story in Acts chapter 9. Remember this whole thing? Before Paul was Paul, he was named a guy named Saul. And he's walking on his way to go persecute Christians. And all of a sudden, this glorious vision approaches him and knocks him down on the ground. And there while on the ground, the vision looks at him and goes, why are you persecuting me? Which is a hilarious question being to be asked by someone who just knocked you to the ground. And of course, Paul is, Saul is like, uh, who are you, Lord? And the vision of Jesus looks and says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And you can hear the sort of wheels going off in Paul's mind where he's like, oh, now I see where the confusion was. <laughs> you see, I was going down to persecute these Christians. I'm not, I'm not persecuting you. How could I with how glorious and wonderful you really are? But what the vision is explaining to him is, is no, 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 no. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Why? Because, Paul, what you've got to understand is this connection, this intimacy, this bond that exists between me and my people is so real and so true that what became true about them became true about me on the cross, and I was executed for it. And my father was at the helm of that whole thing. But here's the deal. All of what they did after it was cast on me happened so that all of what I am can be cast on them. <laughs> you see the difference there? And now because of all of that is true, everything that can be said to be true of me, Jesus, is now true of my people as well. That's in Christ. Now, this is the only way that you can explain the way Paul talks from here on out. Like, he really believes this. So much so that he's going to say, everything that even happened to Jesus happened to you. Jesus died, but you know what? You died with him. Number two, Jesus was raised from the dead. Yes, but you know what? You rose together with him. And you're like, when did I do that? Because you're in him. He's counting it as the same. Jesus ascended into heaven. Yes, but you know what? We are seated with him now in those heavenly places. What does he mean? He means that union with Christ is the center of everything. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you leave out the in Christ, you will never have any blessings at all. Every blessing we enjoy as a Christian comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot be a Christian without being in Christ. Christ is the beginning as well as the end. He is the alpha as well as the omega. There are no blessings for Christians apart from him. Union with Christ. I'm not going to unpack this any further because we're going to dive into this big time in the weeks to come. But let me, let me leave you with one last illustration. It's application. It's simply this. It means that if you're in Christ, you have it all. 
If you are in Christ, it means that there is nothing that you lack. You strive and you hurt and you slog through. You try to rest, you try to achieve, you try to pick yourself back up. You get discouraged, you give up, you walk away and you return. But is it possible that one of the reasons why we feel ourselves on this treadmill, the reason why the word enough drives you insane, if you really thought about it, was I enough? Was I kind enough? Was I nice enough? Did I parent enough? The reason why it does is because we failed to apprehend who we are in Christ. Because if we are in Christ, we've already won everything we could possibly need. Reminded me of my favorite scene uh, from the movie uh, Moneyball. Moneyball stars uh, Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill. Brad Pitt's the manager of the Oakland A's uh, uh, back in the, in the 2000s. And um, Brad Pitt gets discouraged as the manager. Things have not gone the way in which he hoped they'd gone. Things are coming up empty in him. And so his assistant, Jonah Hill, kind of calls him into the video room to take a look at some video. And what he shows him is a 240-pound catcher by the name of Jeremy Brown. Actually graduated from Alabama, of all places. But Jeremy is known for one thing in his leagues. He's known for the guy who never runs to second base. Part of it is a projection of his own heaviness that makes him self-conscious. But he's never going to second base. But the video opens, and Jonah Hill's character says this. He says, this game I'm showing you was from six weeks ago because he starts off with a fastball and Jeremy's going to take him to deep center. And here's what's really interesting. On this occasion, Jeremy's going to do what he's, never go- what he's never done before. He's going to go for it. He's going to round first and he's going to try to make it to second base. But as you're watching the grainy video, Jeremy gets to first base and he slips off first base and falls flat on his face. And while he's there, he begins to start to scramble and race and sort of uh, see it writhe on the ground in desperation. Everything inside of him trying to get back to that first base, crawling on the ground. And all of a sudden, Jeremy begins to hear the crowds as they scream. And Jonah Hill says, here are Jeremy's, all of Jeremy's nightmares are coming to life. Right in this moment, he was right. He was right to be afraid. He was right to be ashamed. Brad Pitt's character looks at him and goes, oh, they're laughing at him. Jonah Hill looks at him and goes, and he's about to find out why. That even as Jeremy is looking up at his first base coach, terrified and confused and embarrassed, Jonah Hill says, Jeremy's about to realize that the ball went 60 feet over the fence. He hit a home run and he didn't even know it. Look, here's the point. If you're in union with Christ, you hit a home run. And how tragic that we oftentimes don't even know it. We find ourselves in squalor on the ground, racing back to those little safety things that we thought that we would have that would make us comfortable, but are failing at every turn. John Stott's going to go on to say, this Ephesians letter is pure music. What we read here is truth that sings, doctrine set to music. The apostle proclaims God's order to a culture which was marked by social disintegration. And therefore, Ephesians today is therefore the most contemporary book in the whole Bible because it promises community and disunity, reconciliation instead of alienation, and peace instead of war. So how about you? (laughs) What are the joys that are exciting you this morning? What's, What's driving you this morning? What... What disappointments are threatening to sort of pull the rug all out from under you? Because it just may be that in the book of Ephesians, it might have something in store 
It could surprise you. And so my challenge is, come on back and listen in. Let's see if we don't discover something that we didn't know was there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you walk us into that? Because the truth of the matter is, we feel exactly like that catcher. Some of us scrambling, fearful, looking at you and saying, it was all along. All along we were fools. But none of it's true because in you, every spiritual blessing is accessible to us. Even now we're talking in our minds to, to someone as we access heaven. Pray, Father, that we come to bear in our hearts even as we come up to a table and taste and see that you are good literally. We pray that you would apply it to our hearts. Do you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.